Hello and welcome to another podcast from Beyond Borders Scotland. I'm Steve Richards and one of the great joys of the Beyond Borders Festival is the range of voices gathered for a weekend at the end of August. And now, with the magic of podcasts, you can all experience it from anywhere across the world. And the podcast we're going to hear today is from an event last summer uh, where we reflect on what it is like partly on the front line of the Ukrainian war, but as always with uh, Beyond Borders, we delve far deeper than that and go much wider. Uh, And with, again, a range of different experts. I won't go into detail uh, as I introduce the podcast because you'll hear my introduction from the live event. But suffice to say, when you talk about the front line, Channel 4's Lindsay Hilson was part of the panel, and she's there a lot of the time. You think, talk about the front line. You know, you often hear terrible things going on around her as she does a piece to camera. But we also have people who've analysed uh, conflict, uh, specialists in how wars end, uh, and uh, the BBC's Lucy Ash, uh, who's uh, uh, just written a book, actually. Uh, it wasn't out at the time of the festival on uh, Russia. So, as ever, uh, Beyond Borders has put together a great cast. Uh, The audience was very engaged. So now you too can experience the magic of Beyond Borders. Uh, Here is the live event from last August on the front line of the Ukrainian war and the wider implications. Lucy Ash has, uh, is a writer and broadcaster. She's writing a book on Russia at the moment and has just recently got back from Ukraine. Lindsay Hilsom, as you know uh, from Channel 4 News, has been around Ukraine throughout this war. And Professor Mark Weller uh, has been addressing the question, which of course hovers over this whole thing amongst many other pursuits, how wars end and specifically how this one might end. Um, So we've got very different perspectives to try and make sense of what's happening. Uh, We did a discussion a year ago, how has it changed since then? Many of you might have been here a year ago. And here we are again, it's still going on. So let's explore some themes. Before we go into sort of delving deep with the themes, The two of you have been to Ukraine, Lindsay often, Lucy recently. Uh, Lindsay, I only see you in real life here, and then I see you on television in front of some grim scene in uh, Ukraine. When you're there, and obviously you go to places which are at the heart of a news story, how dangerous is it for you, for the people? What's your assessment of the impact of the war here in August 2023 on Ukraine, being there a lot of the time. Thank you, Steve, and thank you everybody who's who's come here to hear about Ukraine, which I think we all agree is the most urgent um, conflict issue of our time. Um, I got back, I was there in June for about three, four weeks, and um, I was in the, the northeast, and it was the beginning of the, the counter-offensive. And so I went to a village called Blaudatne, 
And I think a couple of things about that village were really interesting. It was the first village to be taken during this counteroffensive, the counteroffensive being the Ukrainians trying to take back territory which the Russians have seized. And this is territory which the Russians seized when they first occupied part of Ukraine in 2014, and also territory which they have seized in this war starting, uh, starting last year. And um, for the Ukrainians, it was very difficult. It's extremely difficult. Blaudatne was one of five villages they took at that time, and they have scarcely made any progress in that area since then. When we went into the village with the Ukrainian military, there were drones overhead the whole time, Russian drones, and that did make it dangerous because we knew that they could they could see us and they could fire something from that drone at any time. So, you know. And, the soldiers, the Ukrainian soldiers, were so attuned to it. Sometimes I wouldn't hear anything, and they'd go, right, in, now. And so you just have to, to go inside a house or something. We saw where the Russians had stayed in the time they'd been occupying the village. Um, there was one, it was extraordinary, really. It was just like an ordinary rural house, and you could see the pickles in jars, which the, the, the farmers had left as they had fled however many months ago. And in the dog kennel, that was where the Russians had kept their rockets. Is that where you keep your rockets, in the dog kennel? Most of the time, but not always. No, 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 always. no. So, you know, it was these uh, extra this extraordinary, um, the domestic and the ordinary, totally disrupted. It was like a time warp, you know, that, that nothing had changed in, this, in these houses since the people had fled, and yet, of course, everything had changed. And then before I... I pass it to Lucy. I think one of the other things which sticks with me from that trip was the Ukrainians, they're quite reluctant to talk very much about um, casualties, about how many Ukrainian soldiers are being killed. And yet we know that this is, this is a terrible thing and it's a huge thing. And so there's a simple way of a, as a journalist of trying to find out, which was that we would go, we went to two graveyards. And in the graveyards, there are some graves now which have the yellow and blue of the Ukrainian flag flying over. And so you go to that grave and you look, and it's um, Serhi or it's Vova or whoever it is, and they have been, this is a young man, and he has been killed in the last, in the last few, few months. And I have to say that going into the, into the graveyard in uh, Dnipro, um, there was a family which was mourning. The sound of those women crying is not a thing which is ever going to leave me. Mm -hmm. Because the rawness of that, of that grief, of the sacrifice which Ukrainian families are making. And yet talking to that family, and they all wanted to talk, they're incredibly proud of their, their son. And you, you, it's, a, it's a question, a sort of journalistic question. You know, can I ask, is it worth it? You know, it's not a question you want to ask, so you find a way around the question. But all the families I met were, we have to do this. We have to do this. That the Russians are occupying our land and they cannot be allowed to get away with it. And yes, I've sacrificed my son. And yes, I will feel that forever. But he's a hero and we have to do this. And that was a universal feeling I got from the, the families going through the most terrible grief that I, that I met in June. Okay, and Lucy, you, you were traveling around Ukraine re for research for your new book. Now you've traveled in all kinds of different places, many of them quite dangerous places. What struck you about traveling around Ukraine in the context of what's happening? 
Well, like Lindsay, I also went to um, look at some graveyards. Um, I went to one in Lviv in the field of Mars, and um, there were so many freshly dug graves there. I'd like to say, though, that I was quite struck by how many graves there were of female soldiers, mm -hmm. and that Ukraine has got the most feminized army in Europe. And uh, there were, some of them are doctors, some of them are nurses, uh, some of them are snipers, some of them are sappers. And um, it's really, you know, it, a loss of life is terrible in any way. But at the beginning of this war, a lot of um, people were against women taking part in combat because they thought it would just be too demoralizing uh, if women died on the front line. Um, but uh, there is this determination that, like Lindsay says, we have to take our land back. And I went in Kiev, I went to um, an NGO called Veteranka which uh, means a female army veteran. And there they have a big workshop where they make drones, but they also make um, uniforms for female soldiers because some of them were um, falling over and, and uh, getting wounded or even killed because the, their trousers were too big and they couldn't run fast enough or their boots weren't too big and they, you know, all those sorts of problems. So um, I think that there are lots of horrible things about this war, but I also felt in this NGO, there was a sense of community um, between the families of, of um, soldiers who had died, uh, people who were still at the front. They were everywhere, artists I know, businessmen, restauranteurs. They all spend a lot of their spare time making nets that you throw over tanks. Uh, you know, you tie bits of green and brown uh, rags onto it to make camouflage. And, and everybody sort of wants to help in whatever way they can. But what I think I've noticed is I first went um, after the full-scale invasion last September, September 2022, and um, I was at the Yalta Strategy Conference in Kiev, and the mood was very buoyant because um, several towns and villages in the northeast had just been retaken, Liman, yes. Kupiansk, yeah, um, and p people were very um, excited about how successful the counteroffensive was. This time round uh, is a very different, much more sobering, um, sort of uh, despairing sometimes atmosphere. And although there are loads of people that are very, very keen to fight and are very patriotic, there are also a, a lot of uh, young men and women that I met that say they're absolutely terrified. and. Uh, there's been a big scandal, as I'm sure you've read about, in the military recruitment offices because um, uh, people there have been accepting bribes of the order of $10,000 to give someone a sick note, what they call a white ticket, to say they're not fit to fight. Um, and uh, there have been quite a lot of uh, people escaping across the Carpathian Mountains to Romania to dodge the draft. And, and all the sort of people that wanted to fight the sort of most patriotic um, have gone already. And now there are a lot of people that are being sent unwillingly to the front line. And you sort of wonder how sustainable this is, because uh, as Lindsay said, that you, it's very, very difficult to find any figures about casualties. Um, but, but obviously, it's uh, very, very attritional, this war, and uh, very costly in blood. Mark, could I ask you, uh, say we were here a year ago, analysing where the war was at that point. And it seems that quite a lot of elements that were explored then are still in place. Lucy says morale is even 
uh, more depressed now than a, a, a year ago from within Ukraine. Monitoring it, have you seen any, before we come on to how wars end, but any, what have you considered significant that has happened over the last 12 months that makes the situation now different to then, or, or, or is it broadly the same? has remained the same is the fact that am I not? Oh. Um, does this work? It's okay. Just it's okay? keep talking and they'll turn it up. They'll oh right. Yeah. Keep talking and they'll turn it up. I can sing some naval sea shanties. To, <laughs> <laughs> speak, Do you want a sea shanty? Uh, to test the microphone. Is that okay? Yeah. So this is a fight about Ukraine but it is also a fight about what kind of world we want to live in. Do we want to live in a world where someone can suddenly claim your land and say, I'm the president of a more powerful neighboring state, it's now mine. And that is the change that has occurred. But that, but, but that was September in place from oh, of last year, okay. more or less exactly a year ago, uh, there was the annexation of the newly occupied provinces by Russia. And that is a big difference because it makes it much more difficult later to come perhaps to settlement because they would have to unannex them. They're now saying we will defend to the death, we the Russians, will defend to the death our own holy Russian motherland, which now includes these four provinces and previously in 2014 also the Crimea. What is still in play is the question of the international determination to uphold the sense that this kind of acquisition of territory through naked force, entirely, entirely unprovoked, without any reasons, yes, they try to offer some sort of false parallels, which they fill with falsely, with entirely invented facts, a genocide against Russian speakers or whatever, has been argued, are we going to be able to maintain a united global stance that says this is not on? The international rules would say any outcome of this that results in the transfer of territory from one state to the other through force, through ethnic cleansing, through crimes against humanity has no legal validity, will never ever be justified. And I think the question will be to what extent an international consensus supporting these principles can be maintained. We have the BRICS countries, we have some African states who are kind of adding their own frustrations about the international system into the mix and somehow conflate that with the struggle of the Ukrainians and say, you have to resolve these other issues and therefore also this distraction of Ukraine. And that's a challenge which is growing but I think the essence has to be to say it's for the Ukrainians in the first place to determine their position in this conflict, and it is for us to maintain absolutely essential values of the international system and to support their enforcement. Is it uh, your sense, Lindsay, that uh, this international consensus, as far as there is one, mm can endure the question you pose. Um, you know, some people are saying next winter it could be uh, tested. Uh, various elections looming for national governments sure. where the cost of living is the absolute issue. Whether the, I mean, it's relatively easy early on, isn't it? Something, 
happens and people coalesce around a cause. We're now quite a long time on. Do you think it will Look, I don't think there is an international consensus. There's a Western consensus. Um, European countries and America. But uh, China looks on this differently. China is not um, keen on the uh, moving of borders and the changing of borders, but nonetheless, um, they see themselves in some kind of a, an alliance, a forever friendship or whatever they call it, with, with Russia. And as you mentioned, the, the BRICS countries in Africa. I would see this as a war of um, post-colonial restoration, the former colonial power, uh, Russia, and at the time, you know, Soviet Union, and before that, Russia, trying to regain territory which it controlled in the time of um, Catherine the Great and Potemkin, and in the Soviet times, they want it back. Um, they would see it as, you know, Greater Russia, Little Russia, White Russia, which is Belarus. Um, so I see it as a, as a colonial war, but African leaders, certainly, and I think many people don't see it um, in that way, and they in some ways regard it as an anti-colonial war because they see the colonialists as um, Europe and by extension America, and uh, who, who were their colonialists. So there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. But I think that the main thing, and this is the very, this is the, the, the key moment we're at now, is that what I saw at the beginning of the counter-offensive um, is, is that this is very difficult for Ukraine to, to go forward now and to get to a position of strength on the, on the ground militarily. Because while the Western countries were providing Ukraine with the, with the weaponry, and we all read the stuff about you know, leopard tanks and, and so on, um, they, the Russians used that time to lay down innumerable landmines. So many landmines that the east of Ukraine and much of the south, I understand it would take 750 years to clear them. So that is the territory through which the Ukrainians are trying to move. Now, obviously, that's not possible. So they need longer range weapons and the storm shadows which uh, the British have provided are amongst these. But now we're, we're talking about ruin. You know, we're talking about Tacitus. They created a desolation and called it peace. So what kind of peace are we talking about? What kind of territory is Ukraine saying is going to fight to the end to retain territory which nobody can live in for 750 years? What are we talking about here? And I think, but the Ukrainians understand very, very well that, you know, when you get to the American election, they want more and more weapons. That, I understand that. But, A, more and more weapons don't necessarily get them to where they need to be, i.e. A, a position of strength on the ground militarily from which some, any, some kind of negotiation might start. And also, we have an election in America and the Republican candidates, Trump or whoever, are not pro-Ukrainian. Trump is arguably an asset of, of Putin. So then the whole thing changes. It's a very, very volatile and difficult situation. <coughs> Which raises many questions when we come to look at how this might end. Lucy, what about the position of Putin? Um, it's, there's, there's a, actually, there's probably a book to be done just about speculation about Putin because... You know, when the war started, a lot of the British media were saying, oh, he's obviously ill, he's got cancer, and, he, you know, he's weak and mad. Wishful thinking. Wishful and, thinking. Well, yeah, I was going to say, you know, then he pops up looking thinking. quite well, you know, in some broadcast somewhere. Uh, then something else happens, and people say, well, that will weaken Putin's position. Then he pops up again, 
and then we had the so-called Wagnerian attempted uh, coup. Well, that obviously weakens Putin. Then he assassinates the leadership of the Wagnerian attempted coup. I've read that will weaken Putin, but there he still is. Now, you've lived and worked in Russia. What is his position? Is it weakened? And what does weakened mean? I mean, for example, last year we actually had someone on satellite here from Ukraine saying one of the issues is that in Russia, popular opinion was still massively behind him. So, so when I keep on reading, he's weakened. Does it mean anything? What's your interpretation? Well, I think it was uh, very um, destabilizing for him, Prigozhin's coup, um, when he sort of uh, hopped on a plane and flew north. It didn't look very good in his sort of strongman uh, image. Um, but, you know, I, I agree that he likes, uh, he's a very um, vindictive character, and he has said in uh, many times that the one thing he'll never forgive is betrayal. Yeah. Um, and he sort of says it with a, a sort of wry smile or a, a sort of smirk. Um, I think that it's uh, unthinkable to imagine that he would ever give up Crimea. Um, I, I went there like four months after the annexation in 2014 mm -hmm. to find out who was going on holiday there. Um, because lots of Russians told me that they had very warm memories of it. It was a kind of uh, a paradise. There were sort of children's holiday camps there. It was like their sort of Côte d'Azur, their south of France. Um, and the place where they had their first kiss, where they had their first uh, puff of a spliff. You know, it was full <laughs> of all these sorts of memories for many, many Russians. And um, there were people there selling T-shirts with Putin's face on it. And uh, the slogan, Vyezhli Ludi, you know, polite people, because they were very proud of the fact that no shots were fired and uh, it was all taken. There very was. Oh. There were two shots fired, I was there. Oh, anyway, right. go on. But okay. You finish, I'll come back to the two shots. <laughs> no, they were always yeah. where the shots are being fired. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No yeah. corpses, evident. There were no corpses. But, um, yeah. but yes, I mean, I, it, it was made into this great sacred campaign and it also happens to be the place where uh, Vladimir or Volodymyr, if you're Ukrainian, um, was uh, first baptized and he is the person who Christianized the Eastern Slavs and brought Christianity to the area a thousand years ago. So it's got a huge amount of uh, sacred meaning. It vastly boosted his popularity when uh, Crimea was annexed. They spent huge amounts of money building this bridge that the Ukrainians mm. keep trying to blow up between uh, Kerch and the Russian mainland. And I, I cannot see that he could survive politically if he were going to agree uh, mm. to hand back Crimea to Ukraine. Uh, uh, but, you know, Zelensky says absolutely after Butcher, no compromise ever. Yeah. Okay. So, Mark, what's your, when you reflect on how this might possibly end, what are your assumptions about Putin and the control he has over uh, Russia? And, um, and when I read he's weakened, what does it mean? In yeah, what I understand is that this expectation that Putin will be toppled by oligarchs because for a year, more than a year, they haven't been able to shop at Harrods. <laughs> It's dreadful. They will get rid of him. 
that that is probably not the realistic threat to Mr. Putin. The realistic threat to Mr. Putin, if ever there is one, is the military, arguing that he has not allowed us to fight the war sufficiently, effectively, brutally. We haven't won. This is a shame, a disgrace for the military. We have to ensure that Russia is great again and that we win spectacularly, and he has to let us off the leash. If he doesn't, we'll take over and then just watch what happens. So that actually the hope of the coup, I wonder if that's not a double-edged sword, uh, mm. sword, that it could actually be worse rather than better. Uh, as I was already, already thinking, I think since the annexation, first Crimea, which you say they'll never give up, and now former oblasts or provinces, much more difficult to see how this can be brought to an end through political negotiations. In terms of the endings, yes, uh, people are speculating that there could be a sort of a minimum outcome, which is that you have a stalemate, nothing much changes on the ground, and then maybe you have some tactical agreements on exchanging prisoners, maybe some humanitarian issues, and BRICS and others will insist on grain, on energy security and other things being negotiated. But the actual issue remains untouched because both sides, as you say, are yeah. utterly immovable. That can be sort of a middle option where they stabilize the situation, perhaps some withdrawals, and then there will be perhaps some ceasefire with peacekeeping or at least observations, and some tactical advances, or at the moment entirely unlikely, but uh, uh, what really would need to be done, a larger political solution where there is a withdrawal, but arrangements for, say, Russian-speaking populations for their rights and protection, for a secure corridor linking Crimea with the rest of Russia, even if there's no territorial land bridge which belongs to Russia, mm -hmm. and other solutions one could think about. But sadly, we all know that there's no market at the moment on either side yes. for these ideas. And everybody says, uh, we'll win in the end. Let's just wait until we have another leopard, leopard tank yeah. and maybe another F-16 now. And then we can do uh, it. Yeah. And then uh, we are in a much better position and we'll win. Or Russia saying, well, let's just wait until whatever, we have the next offensive. Or, uh, or until so Trump is back in the White House. Trump is back, which yeah, is actually a like very that. major pressure point. It's a major pressure point for uh, the Ukrainians. On the Ukrainians. Yeah. Okay, well, let's briefly explore the implications of what you're saying and what Lindsay said mm -hmm. about the possibility of Trump or a Republican winning next year. Uh, is it your sense, as someone who has explored how many wars end, uh, including this one, um, that we will probably be back here next year analysing an ongoing war? For now, it looks like that. Right. Um, but that will, I think, slowly become the point where the sides will realise that something is changing. So perhaps towards the end of next year, as you say, American mm. elections and other points, uh, there might be some dynamics. But for now, uh, I th you know, if you were to ask the man or woman on the Kiev omnibus, are you in favor of peace negotiations? I think it's 80% no. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely and not. if you were to ask many Russians, are you going to give up Crimea? I would yeah. guess the answer is similarly clearly no. So it's not just Putin or an unresponsive Ukrainian leadership. It's now the fairly decisive mobilization of two societies. Uh, two, two societies. And, and the more we hear about 
you know, attacks on Moscow itself or more atrocities discovered in Ukraine, the worse it will get. Even, even people that say they're anti-Putin, when you say things like, would you um, be prepared to pay war reparations to Ukraine for all the kind of trillions of dollars of damage that has been done now, maybe it's billions of dollars, but um, <laughs> the, they say absolutely no way. Um, so, you know, I, I don't feel that there's also enough consensus in Europe um, about it. I mean, listening to Nicolas Sarkozy um, yesterday or the day before, when he was um, saying, you know, Russia is an intrinsic part of Europe, we have to be friends with Putin mm -hmm. again, you know, and uh, that, uh, you know, again, sort of talking about Crimea, um, it, it feels a bit like uh, this old Gaullist sentiment that we can't be too pro-American uh, because it sort of acts against European interests that's tearing us apart. And then there are all the right-wing movements in Europe that we're talking about in the session this morning about Germany. Mm. Um, it, many of which are funded by Russia. Many of which are funded by Russia. And, and Lindsay, finally, and then we'll mm. open it up. Mm. Um, what if Trump, or it uh, could be any of the other Republican mm. candidates, if he's somewhere else by the time of the election, um, uh, what, uh, what, what would that impact be if America, I mean, Biden has been very supportive. He's yes. been the key figure for Zelensky. Um, if that were to change, would that be decisive, that Ukraine it's, it's, would have to then move because well, they wouldn't I, have no, the support well, I mean, what of do America? We mean by, it depends what we mean by decisive, because I think that, you know, the, from a Ukrainian perspective, the end state, I mean, your professor talked about all things could possibly happen territorially, but there's also the issue of joining the European Union or NATO, because there has to be some kind of guarantee for Ukraine, particularly if they if they give up, give up territory. So if you go back to, you know, World, you know, Second World War and Finland, which gave up um, Karelia, but then became neutral, and that protected um, Finland through the, the Cold War and so on, that is not going to work in Ukraine. That if Ukraine, the only way I can see Ukraine agreeing to give up territory is if the quid pro quo of that is that they, they get uh, European Union and possibly NATO membership because then that protects them as a country and then they can exist as a country. But if they don't have that, how do they exist as a country? And I think that that is the, the, the sort of greatest danger because if you get an American president coming in which does not believe, you know, does not believe in the protection of Ukraine, then Putin will do it again. And he will, he will come in further and he will take the whole place over. And then... And then I don't know what happens because the Ukrainians obviously will, um, you know, fight back as they have done, and they've been incredibly um, inventive and innovative and effective in their ability to fight to fight back. But that ability it goes in two directions at once. That they become more effective because they're a better army now than they than they were, and they have better equipment and so on. But then you have the demoralization factor and what uh, Lucy was talking about, about people being asked to fight who don't really want to, to fight. And so I think then you end up in a, in a situation of a very long war. And just uh, the counter to that, that that's explores the route where America withdraws support from Ukraine and, and, and it possibly... <coughs> an alternative is, you know, that, that Ukraine do get more weapons uh, mm. from various allies. I mean, I mean whenever Zelensky's in London, it's, mm. give me the jets, give me the... If, if, if that were to happen on a greater scale, no sign that it necessarily will, would that, would that swing it, you, uh, would that give Ukraine leverage towards ending this one way or another, or, or not? Well, I, I actually don't think that the war will be decided by 
as I said, another clutch of leopards no. or mm. F-16s, although the psychology, <laughs> if there's a sense that our support is drying up, we'll be left alone in a month's yeah. time, I think that would have a diff uh, an impact. But all the practical issues, there are solutions for most of the issues between the parties. We can think of confirming that Crimea is after all Ukrainian, but leasing it to you for 99 years. We can think of all sorts mm. of of ways to overcome them. That's kind yes. of, sort of Mark Willis and my job to uh, work on those kind of those kind of Challenging things. Job. But it is the the parties being persuaded still that they win. And unless and until they come to a sense, which I think is likely at some point, it's an unresolvable stalemate. Neither side mm. will win. Mm. Both sides are now starting to lose that they will come more seriously to explore these ideas. And that means that for people like us, we have to continue developing the ideas and getting ready for it. But also the internationals are doing something. You have mm. seen that there was a conference in Copenhagen, then in mm. Saudi Arabia, where the miracle happened that India, that second conference, China, China came, came along. Yeah, that was interesting. And that is extremely important because that lays the groundwork for actually doing the three things that we need. Russia, Ukraine, yes, they have to come to this balancing of interest, very difficult in the, this atmosphere. But there's the other dimension. Remember that uh, the peace negotiations started before the war began. In yes, December, yes. Uh, the Russians offered a European new security order. It was manifestly unacceptable to the West. It walked NATO back to 1997. But it tells us the conflict is also about other things, about Russia's position vis-a-vis -vis European security. We need to somehow bind that discussion perhaps into the settlement. And finally, you have seen China's 12 peace proposals. One of them is security of a global chain of industrial production. <laughs> they, feel, they feel, uh, you know, they have a lot of other interests now get drawn into this idea of an overall settlement. There is a food security, grain, and other issues. So that in the end, you probably have three layers that you all have to bring yeah. together, and they are starting to do that. That's and that, I think, is the only encouraging sign that we actually see. And yeah. there's the nuclear power station, which is nuclear. a rogue element, which, yeah. oh, which I think may be some helpful pressure from China. China has said that. Because uh, there's yeah. been all kinds of crazy pronouncements from uh, Russia about, uh, you know, not, not from Putin himself, but from people close to him about how uh, they're yes. going to nuke this and that capital. Exactly. But no first use but of nuclear weapons. Yeah. And that's very helpful from China. Uh, yeah. yeah, because they would then lose any Chinese support. Exactly. That. Okay, well, sort of two or three rays of light amidst the darkness. Let's now have a wider discussion. Who would like to speak? I, I just saw the guy at the back on, on, on the right. It's, the microphone's quite near you, so uh, let's start there. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name's David Hamilton. I'm an aid worker with Edinburgh Direct Aid. Uh, I've been in Ukraine four times now, and one of the things that is uh, perplexing a lot of Ukrainians is what does Putin have to do to cross over a line that is unacceptable for the entire international community? Because they understand that most of the support is Western-based, but as we've already heard, there's so many parts of the world are not getting behind the behind this. What does he need to do to actually cross a line that is unforgivable? Okay. He's called environmental damage, he's poisoned people, he's thrown them out of windows. 
it is unbelievable behaviour when you write it all down and look at it. What does he need to do that will really take the world, prick up and get some unity? Okay, before, can I just check how long we've got? Um, if, uh, you've got 15 minutes and great. 57 seconds. Fif oh, it's there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's brilliant. It's a whole, it's, it's a modern technology here. Um, okay, uh, is there anything? Uh, given already the record of uh, atrocities that could widen this coalition of support against uh, what he's doing. So we had a 143 states who voted that the use of force was unacceptable, unlawful, had to be reversed the first time, and who voted the second time that the new annexations were legally void so there is a kind of universal consensus that this is the wrong thing. But what you put your finger to is the fact that only 38 or so states have actually done something about it in addition to saying it's wrong. And that shows us how thin the consensus globally is in relation to what is sometimes called the Western liberal world order, our vision that we all agree on certain things as we did in Kuwait, we stand up for certain things against aggression, and together we are defeated. Some of Western policy, Iraq 2003, some other issues have, under, I think, undermined that consensus, Certainly. arguments about double standards. Putin is exploiting that. As I said earlier, those are actually false parallels filled with facts that don't exist, but that has some traction. Uh, what is it that would move us even further into darkness, that everybody joins actually with sanctions? Uh, I dare not think, perhaps use of nuclear weapons. But I think, look, I think that the use of nuclear weapons, obviously what we've just discussed, which is the, the use of nuclear weapons in China. But I think that we're sort of coming at it from the wrong point of view. The, the, the countries who are not supporting Ukraine against Russia, they're not looking at it from a human rights point of view. They're looking at it from their own interests and where they see their own interests. And there's also this whole issue of, you know, whataboutism. They don't want to be on the American or the Western side because they say well, what you did in, you, in Iraq, Iraq or in Afghanistan or when you colonised us in the 19th century or whatever it is. And so the answer is nothing because that is not, for them, what matters. What matters is how they perceive their own interests. So it's a different question. Yeah, and you mentioned the nuclear power thing in yeah, China, with, with China as, which might be a constraining thing that's rather than... Yeah. 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 Um, Thank you. Uh, let's go over to the other side. Yeah, right at the back there, the mic's next to you. Yeah. Uh, how important is Zelensky as an individual and what would happen if he were killed? Mm. Zelensky as an individual, how important? Well, uh, you've yeah. interviewed yeah. him, haven't you? I've not interviewed oh, him, right. no. But, uh, you, you, look, he is important as an individual and, you know, it's very much a sort of cometh the hour, cometh the man because I don't think anybody... I mean, before the war started, you know, people were grumbling about him for all sorts of, of you know, political reasons and, and so on. But he, he has stepped up in an incredible way and he does have huge support. But that doesn't mean that Ukraine was without politics. I know at least two other people who would like to challenge him as president and their time will probably come you know, after the war or, or later on. And so, I mean, I don't think it's sort of, you know, if he were killed, that, you know, that takes us onto a whole different level. But I think that the point is ordinary politics haven't gone away. And one of the other issues is the corruption issue. And Lucy mentioned how you know, he sacked all the uh, recruitment officers in all of the, the regions because of this bribery scandal. He sacked other people because of, the, of um, taking, um, you know, taking money 
from arms contracts. So he's fighting these internal battles the whole time. Now that makes him, when people see him fighting those battles, that makes him popular because people are very angry about corruption. But of course it also makes him enemies because it makes enemies of the, the people who are being sacked for being corrupt. So he's always treading this this tightrope and you know in the outside world everybody thinks he's marvelous and he's Nelson Mandela and he's God within Ukraine it's a bit more complicated than that yes. yeah I think that um, what brought people onto the Maidan uh, the revolution of dignity I was there um, for that uh, uh, twice during that period is a kind of total disgust with corruption which kind of affected people at every level of their lives, whether it was, uh, you know, getting their car fixed, going to the doctor, trying to get a place at university, trying to get their exam marked, whatever it was, you know, it's just totally endemic. And uh, people were, were sick and tired of it, and they associated uh, Viktor Yanukovych's reign with that, not just that he was in the pocket of the Kremlin, but also that mm -hmm. he enabled this kind of thuggery and corruption to flourish. But what, what Ukrainians uh, never tire of telling you um, I, I've come across this quite a lot in the church because my book is about the Russian Orthodox Church under Putin. They, they say, but it's true of the church and politics, is that in Ukraine there are far more historically um, sort of horizontal power structures. It's not like a pyramid like in the Kremlin where yes. there's a man at the top who sort of tells everyone what to do. So, I mean, I think Zelensky's a fantastic communicator, obviously. Um, he knows how to get his message across. He knows how to turn on the charm. Uh, he knows, you know, he speaks very good English. He knows, like, mm. you know, how to wow politicians around the world. But, but I don't think that um, Ukraine would crumble um, if, if he wasn't there. Uh, can I just ask, are there any Ukrainians here t mm. in the audience? Yeah, well, there you are. Oh, wow. Yeah, you would know more than us. What, what do you think about the essential uh, leadership uh, as it's seen often in the UK of Zelensky, you know, he's seen as kind of Churchill and uh, how, how central is he to Ukraine at the moment? Hello, my name is Marta Trotsuk and I came here for a fellowship program from Ukraine. I'm staying in Ukraine and traveling back soon. Uh, regarding Zelensky, to be honest, I didn't vote for him and I was really shocked when he was elected. But then when the full-scale war started, uh, we all Ukrainians really appreciated then his state actually in Ukraine because he had chances to leave the country and he stood with us as a nation and he went through with all these hardships and he didn't uh, leave the country and I now I see him the his pictures when he was elected and now and he aged you mm, know so it's much. a lot of pressure every day it's enormous, you know, load of work you, you have to do for your country. So now I really appreciate his work. And I believe m most of the people think the same. Yeah. We have some inside problems inside with the corruption and so on. We try to fight it also. We have problems in terms of culture and how our uh, government see the culture. Is it important or not? So we have m many problematic issues we are trying to resolve inside. Uh, but we believe in our president now because he stayed, that's the first. And he, he, he stayed until now and he will be until the end, hopefully, until the victory and after. Yeah. And uh, may, some people are talking what will be the next elections and so on and so on, but first we have to win the war and then let's see. But as for now, mostly people are, are satisfied and we believe him. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you, do you, it's very interesting because 
in America with Donald Trump, people, Trump's opponents say that all he was was a television personality and then he became a president kind of thing. Here we had Boris Johnson. Unlike others, we could mention. Well, well yeah, no. Well, I was going to say, Boris Johnson, isn't yeah. it terrible? He was on Have I a Quiz Show and he becomes prime minister. And then when we talk about Zelensky, because he's so revered, people say, oh, isn't it amazing? He was just this comedian who becomes prime minister. Um, but from what you're saying, uh, there is a sense across the country that he has risen to this particular mm. challenge, even though you were against him when the, he was elected. Yes, because I didn't feel the connection to him, and I, I didn't like him as a comedian. The, the All right. <laughs> if to be honest. Just not funny enough. <laughs> Just wasn't funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I, I didn't see him as politician. So our previous president, he, he was re very representative, you know, and international community knew him. And we also knew he wasn't the greatest one, you know, the perfect one, no. But I was afraid that people might, I travel a lot before mm -hmm. the war and the full scale and now. So I was kind of ashamed to tell that my, my president is a former comedian. That <laughs> was, you know, like for me, it was a little bit, mm. uh, and also I didn't know how other politicians will see him. Mm. Uh, so that was the issue for me because it's very representative kind of work and mission. So that was my concern. And well, but what at least yours was a former comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. <laughs> yeah. and, and if I can, I, I have a question to mm -hmm. ask. Please. So uh, I, found, I found it problematic, the definition Putin's war. And the question is, how do you think, is it possible to wake up Russians as a nation to do something inside their country regarding the regime kind of because we don't have any faith on them but maybe from your perspective is it any hope still or you think no well uh, i think that's one for lucy you, know, you spent a lot of time in russia is yeah. that how is it that he c seems to command such support beyond the obvious stuff about propaganda and so on they seem to be genuinely behind yeah. Putin, vast numbers, and, and say so ha we had someone from Ukraine on last year who made the same point. You know, why is it, or what can be done to change that mood? What do you, what do you? Well, I mean, most of, uh, almost all of uh, our friends are out of Russia, um, partly because many of them are journalists or human rights activists or campaigners, environmental campaigners, and all of them, if they stayed there, would be behind bars. Um, and, and quite a few people are. But I think the sad thing is, is that there's, in, in the opposition, even the diaspora in exile, there's, there's too many egos fighting and not enough sense of this is a vital time to come together. We've got, we've got to be united because, um, you know, Khodakovsky uh, uh, in London, um, the f former um, executive of Yukos Oil, who was jailed for 10 years by Putin and now lives in the UK and runs an outfit called Open Russia. He um, really doesn't like uh, Navalny, um, Alexei Navalny, who is languishing in a Russian prison um, and doesn't sort of work constructively with Navalny's people. And I feel that this is like really, really sad and um, 
I wish that there was a way that um, people could become, you know, better at working with each other because you know it's it's an emergency and it really has to be dealt with. And then, you know, uh, quite a few Russians talk about this tide of Russophobia, which which I think is very unfair because you know there are a lot of very good Russians, but um, it, they don't help themselves sometimes. I feel. Okay, thank you. Someone was pointing over th there. Somewhere. Yeah, okay, yeah. Thanks. The United Nations was set up to try and prevent war and to try and end wars, and yet in this war it seems to have been completely invisible. What do you think the future for that organization is uh, after the war? So when you contemplate how this might end, how big a role do you envisage the UN playing and why do you think it has been, to quote the questioner, largely invisible. The United Nations does not have much of an existence outside of its membership. It is a membership organization driven by what its members demands from it. It has a very good staff, and we have several of them here, uh, who can exploit space where governments leave it for them. But generally speaking, the UN uh, on peace and security the principal organ dealing with it is the UN Security Council, and therefore the UN cannot be particularly effective where one of the permanent members of the Security Council with a veto is involved, and where it is a direct party to the conflict, uh, it is doomed to relative impotence. The UN Secretary General has been criticized, nevertheless, for not exercising more actively the kind of diplomatic play that his convening power gives him. Mm. Um, and I think that is an issue where the UN could well become more effective, more active, made sure that this group of 40 states and more that is forming itself to try and support a settlement is coordinated or helped to be coordinated by the UN and that the UN has a convening seat at the table. Um, generally speaking though, I think you will have noticed as well that around the world, sadly, uh, many of the conflicts that are being addressed are now being addressed by others. Mm. Because where the central powers and the Security Council can't back up a UN representative, saying that if you don't sign on the dotted line and finally make peace in the interest of all your people, sanctions will follow, or at least something, that is not possible where the Security Council is frozen. And therefore, the UN's involvement in many conflicts has been somewhat stunted and others, regional organizations, IGAT, ECOWAS, uh, look at Colombia where you had an amazing coalition of, Af uh, of the organization of American states, of NGOs, of regional bodies, of British NGOs, individual governments helping. So it becomes a more fractionated uh, system of trying to help on conflicts and again an event like this tends to bring together the practitioners from different places to try and see what we can do together, even where the UN finds it very difficult to be effective. It will come back uh, in another age, but for now it is under serious challenge ever since Libya, uh, when Russia decided that it felt it had been cheated by the internationals and has frustrated many actions in the UN Security Council. Well, those thoughts could trigger another hour's discussion, the role of the UN. I'm afraid we have run out of time, so um, I'd like to thank our panel, who've been uh, brilliant, said, exploring the themes as we did 
uh, last year and shed more light on what has happened and what might happen next. And to all of you for listening and for the brilliant questions, especially from Ukraine, but to, from everyone. Thank you all so much. Bye.